the Canadian investors probably spend 80% of their time looking at the US and, uh, and international, maybe about 20% in Canada, just simply because that's where the opportunities are. Those are where the companies are to invest. The interest rates set by the Federal Reserve have the biggest impact also on, on Canadian interest rates. We really cannot detach from the U.S. market that much. We can detach a little bit and we can sort of be a little bit different, um, but not, not too much or we'll run into problems with our currency or our valuation relative to the U.S. dollar and so forth. Here we are at the turn of the year and it's time to look at so many people's forecasts, predictions of what was going to happen in 2023 many of those were dead wrong. So here we are now at the beginning of 2024, trying to figure out what predictions are accurate. How do I make money? How do I make money in a world where maybe the economy is going to collapse? Maybe there's a soft landing. Maybe there's a hard landing. Maybe there's no landing. A lot of confusion right now, but there are always opportunities to make money no matter what the environment is. So today I'm really happy to bring on Jonathan Wellam, CFA. He's the I think the president, the CEO, the CIO of Rocklink up in Canada. And of course, as a reminder, Rocklink is our, our Wealthion endorsed partner for Canadian citizens. If you live in Canada and you're looking for an investment advisor, Rocklink is the firm that we endorse. Jonathan is the guy that you get to work with there. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. And it doesn't look like you're in Canada right now because I'm looking at gray, cloudy, rainy skies on the East Coast. And you look like you're enjoying a, a golf shirt and sun there. Where are you today? Yeah, right now I'm actually in uh, on Grand Cayman, so part of the Cayman Islands, and just enjoying a uh, a week or two down here with the family over Christmas. But uh, I'm all hooked up and following the markets and able to do my trades down here also if I have to. Have Have you changed your philosophy on anything? Let's say over the past twelve months, was there anything that that you saw in the global economy or in the Fed's behavior or in, in you know people's behavior, consumer behavior, AI? Like, is there something that all of a sudden you think? Something's different now that my, you know, three decades of work, I need to throw something out the window in terms of how I was approaching this, or I need to make a different kind of allocation, or we need to dump some of the stocks in our 20 to 25 basket. Was there some massive shift or learning lesson that you had in the last 12 months? No, there wouldn't have been a, a massive shift. Anything that occurs in our view, um, we, we haven't seen anything that would cause a massive shift. They answer the question specifically. Generally, what, what I have seen over the last 34 years or I've talked to other longer term investors is you just slowly shift your opinion on certain things as you see trends move or opportunities move in the marketplace. And it's basically an evolution. And so our portfolios generally have like a 10% turnover, maybe 15% turnover, and they kind of evolve but there isn't anything too radical. Now, I mean, something could come, I suppose, that would cause a radical change, but you know, most of the businesses that we own, um, you know, the, it's more of an evolution and the portfolios evolve and you, you trim this and you trim this and you add this stock and we find, you know, greater opportunities in this industry over another industry. We, we had a fair bit of position over the years in Honeywell, which has done a great job. They've, uh, you know, they've, they've, uh, added a lot of value. We did well on the stock. We've owned it for about eight years. Um, and then we said to ourselves, okay, there, there's, there's a few challenges uh, ahead for Honeywell. It's, 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 it's done well. And we, we saw better opportunities in Schneider Electric, which would get us some opportunities into the electric grid and, you know, the whole green transition and some of the digitization and things like that. So we'll often just see an evolution where we say, okay, that business has done well, but growth might be not as, not as, 
heady as it used to be and let's find a better opportunity. So we'll trim one and then we'll go into another business looking at it. In the next five to 10 years, it looks like the growth prospects are a little bit better. That's generally what happens in terms of our view. I mean, 10 years ago, I would have been, or say 15 years ago, before the financial crisis, I wasn't as focused on all of the debt, but I think the financial crisis really woke up a lot of people in terms of that. I think the biggest surprise for us, and certainly for myself as an investor, is that we've just continued to pile on debt since 2009 with apparently uh, no adverse you know, reaction. And that's what, you know, is I'm focused on now is at some point, you know, that this debt bubble will come back to haunt us. And I want to make sure I'm in businesses that can weather that, take advantage of it and, and invest through that. Because uh, that, that to me is probably the biggest challenge. Out in the that, that's what I was going to ask is now that you're focused on the debt, and, and the debt was much smaller back 15 years ago. The crazy thing is we thought it was a lot then, and then mm. it's just gone way. The idea if in 07, 08, we thought, okay, imagine now the debt as 10X what we are now. Like we couldn't even imagine it because it was so high at the time and here we are. So that was my question is, are there certain kinds of companies that you're looking at either to avoid or to focus on in a world with this kind of government debt out there? I think two two areas that we would have minimal exposure to, these are broad areas, would be consumer discretionary businesses. We're not big fans of a lot of discretionary uh, businesses because consumers can easily shut down their spending. And we're seeing a little bit of that even last week we saw with Nike. I mean, uh, they're, 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 they're having a tougher time. People don't have to buy as many uh, um, uh, Under Armour shirts, uh, or I should say Under Armour, uh, Nike shirts. Um, at their stores or whatever, or there's running shoes, they can hold on to them a bit longer. But so consumer discretionary, we've we've been cautious for some time. We'd rather have consumer staples and essential businesses. And then um, we also have been light on banks um, the last couple of years. Uh, I just spent, you know, from the Canadian context, the the uh, the Canadian consumer is incredibly leveraged, incredibly leveraged. Our real estate market is much worse than yours in terms of valuation. And so our view is. Why do we want to own the banks who own all these mortgages, um, which, you know, in some cases are going to have to go underwater at some point. They're going to have larger, you know, credit reserves have to come up. So we're cautious about highly leveraged consumer debt um, and uh, organizations that would be that would be exposed to that. And so that means on the flip side, we would look at harder assets, um, essential assets, long lived assets. Um, we do have some in gold, precious metals uh, through mo mostly royalty companies. And, uh, and so, yeah, so it, it has affected our overall asset allocation. And we try to look for longer term trends. So the green transition, uh, more electrification, um, the need to rebuild our grids. Are there opportunities there to find longer term investments or sort of secular growth opportunities there in the manufacturing space? So, yeah, so we're we're trying to look down the corridor of time and, and trying to minimize the risk of, uh, you know, a, a debt blow up. Um, that, that, that's that's a concern to us. It's going to happen at some point. We're just we just can't predict it. We're not going to be telling people we can predict it. But we just know that um, it's, you know, you look at the American budget. I mean, my goodness, you, you might bring in $5 trillion, less than $5 trillion. You have a debt of $34 trillion. Um, you know, it, these numbers just don't add. We're concerned that the, the central banks will have to be back in printing money at some point to fill the gap. 
And uh, we think that addiction is just too strong to get away from. And so again, if we're investing through that, we have to find the businesses that we think we can at least weather that the better than others. Is there, is there a concern that at some point the debt will will be so big that all businesses will crumble? Or is your idea that, hey, we're trying to pick 20 to 25 companies that we think will do well if and when this, this debt collapse happens? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Of course, you, uh, we try not to let the negativity grab us too large, um, grab us by the neck, I guess. And uh, so we, we are making the assumption that it will be ugly, it will be painful, but we'll also have to invest through it. We just can't run to the uh, sidelines. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, you could be sitting in cash, you could be sitting in the wrong currency, the currency could be devalued significantly also, and you'd probably be better into hard assets and things that are scarce, you know, there's scarcity and there's need. And so that's the way we, we're approaching it. And um, so we, we always want to at least have a positive view where there's opportunities in the marketplace and how we can how we can take advantage of that. So, uh, but yes, I mean, if they're, you know, you can always paint a catastrophic situation, but uh, I don't think money is earned by um, thinking in those terms. It's by thinking, I think, wise, prudent, disciplined, investing through the challenges rather than trying to think you can avoid them completely and, you know, and hide your money under a mattress, which could be end up being the worst thing you can do. Right, exactly. If they inflate it all, then that's not going to be worth much. So yeah, exactly. you mentioned you mentioned the you know green transition, electric grid. Obviously, Canada, big big oil and gas, big energy sector there. But we're seeing this you know forced agenda on the world. Hey, we all have to shift to green. We all have to get off the grid. We all got to do this and that. But at some point, it's not economically ready yet, right? The the oil and gas. I mean. You, Cars, the emission on cars is like way less than they used to be 30 years ago, right? Like they're they're much better, but yet there's this whole thing of like, oh, they're all bad, right? But you know, people don't want to buy these expensive batteries, right? A, a car battery on an electric car is like $20,000, right? There's this crazy numbers that it feels like we're not ready for this, right? It feels like we'll get there eventually, but right not right now. How are you dealing with that in your investments? Because you mentioned it. Are you are you moving forward ahead with, I'm going to focus on the companies that are part of the transition, or are you playing a little more defensive that, hey, I don't think this is ready, and I'm going to stick with maybe some of these oil and gas names for now? Yeah, excellent question. Yeah, and so what we're doing is, and to be perfectly frank with you, I, I don't even buy the argument of uh, the climate change agenda anyway. I mean, I think it is grossly overstated. Having said that, um, it is being pushed by um, some very powerful people. I, and I also agree that um, it's being pushed at a rate which is not not possible to execute on. And so there's going to be all sorts of challenges. So the issue that we're doing is we're saying, okay, they say they're going to get rid of fossil fuels. We do not believe that at all. It's going to take, and, it, and if they do get rid of fossil fuels, it'll be decades and decades and decades from now. And so what does that mean, and especially in a country like Canada, but also in the U.S.? We do have exposure to oil and gas companies because we think that uh, by regulating them to death, limiting the new developments and dr drilling and, uh, and so forth, that you're going to restrict supply. If you restrict supply, then uh, the prices are going to go up and the companies that have long tail reserves already in place and are, are extracting those uh, oil and gas reserve, uh, reserves and putting them into play are making a lot of money. And they're not allocating as much capital into the future so they can pay dividends and buy back stock. 
I mean, you look at Buffett buying Occidental and so forth. I mean, the cash flow on these 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 uh, oil and gas companies are amazing, especially the oil companies. So we do own Meg Energy, M-E-G, Meg Energy. We own some Suncor. We own some Canadian natural resources uh, in the portfolios. Not huge weights, but probably 6 7% of clients' portfolio. And uh, we love the cash that's coming off of these businesses. And as they pay down debt, it's they're, all they're going to do is buy back stock and give dividends uh, to shareholders. So um, we think that there's a lot more life in the oil and gas industry than, um, than our so-called global elites or the Davos boys and girls uh, are telling us, right? So that's one way we're investing. On the other side of it, yeah, they are pushing this green agenda. And, um, and so we're looking at companies that can take advantage um, of that. And so companies, I mentioned Schneider Electric before, we spent a lot of time looking at uh, the electrical grids. Now, the electrical grids basically are in terrible shape anyway. I mean, they're not, these are not in great shape. So they need to be rebuilt regardless of, you know, how many EVs are going to be plugging into the system and, uh, and how much gas they're going to be shutting down. And you're going to have to have more electrical appliances and so forth, all these things that they're trying to push on us. The electrical grids are in bad shape, and so there are some companies that are well positioned to provide the parts, the materials, the engineering, um, the development of uh, the concepts, new technology to help rebuild these grids. And companies like Eaton, which is a big U.S.-based company, Hubble, Schneider Electric, uh, um, also, uh, which is European-based, um, are great ways we think to play the this trend over the next uh, ten plus years. And there's, there's a number of things going on in these companies. It's not just about green transition, but we need to build up our electrical grids anyway, and we need to be more efficient and uh, more effective. So that's one way we can play. We can say, okay, there's this push. Yeah, it's, it's doubtful it's going to take place as fast as they say. This is, it's ridiculous. It's going to cause massive inflation and tremendous dislocation in our economies if, we, if they push it at the agenda that, you know, uh, Newsom or our prime minister here in Canada, I mean, again, they're, they're, they're linked at the hip in terms of the thought process. You know, Gavin Newsom in California, if, if they are, think they can get rid of all, you know, I, I, you know in, in internal combustion engine cars, there's just no way. But um, it is, I mean, there is that transition taking place, albeit slowly, then we can profit from that on that side. We can also profit on the oil and gas side. You know, we own Brookfield, the Brookfield companies, um, and they're big on decarbonization, digitization, deglobalization, and uh, they've got a lot of assets now um, invested in the whole decarbonization area also. But th they also work economically. I mean, they make economic returns on them now in this market. So we want to be in companies that are not being subsidized to death, require government subsidies that could disappear overnight companies that can allocate capital, make high rates of return. Um, and so that's the way we're, we're sort of straddling it, I think, because we are somewhat uh, cynical of what's taking place. Uh, we question it heavily. We do not buy it. Another area that we're looking at, we have not made direct investments, although Berkshire, uh, not Berkshire, uh, Brookfield has some investments, is the whole nuclear area. And uh, so we have exposure a little bit to some uranium, but uh, we're also spending a fair bit of time looking at the uh, nuclear area because I do believe that um, that area, it's basically become accepted. Both left and right on the political spectrum are agreeing that uh, nuclear is going to play a bigger role too. So there's going to be some opportunities there. Of course, in Canada, we have Cameco, which is the massive uranium player in terms of the actual commodity itself. And, uh, and so we're looking at that space as future opportunities, but we don't have a lot there right now. Yeah, I think that's a good... 
a good breakdown uh, of how you're looking at, at some of these energy plays. I did want to ask too, because so many of our guests in the last few months have been talking about AI, right? In that AI is going to change the nature of these companies, or it's going to make certain companies obsolete, or it's going to change the way that labor, you know, gets done, you know, how you hire people, all of this stuff. What's your perspective on it? I know we haven't, you know, you haven't mentioned it yet. You did mention the Brookfield and the digitization. So that's what made me think about it. Are you looking at that as a real true game changer for your, your investment paradigm? Or is that just, just one little factor? How, how important is that to you? Yeah. And for us right now, we're still studying and looking at it, seeing what the implications are. We have owned um, and do have some Microsoft on the book, which has exposure. I mean, we've owned Amazon for many years. I bought a lot more last year when it got hammered in 2022. Um, you know, they have, they're going to utilize it. Um, we, we, we have not owned NVIDIA, um, which uh, that would have been a great play to own at the beginning of the year. But um, so we're kind of watching. We think clearly it's going to have a, an, you know, an impact on businesses. But we're more interested in how do businesses use it to drive productivity and increase profitability rather than AI investing in it specifically as, as uh, you know, the companies that are sort of pure play in it. Um, we haven't come to a conclusion exactly on that side of it. We're more interested in businesses that will utilize it and just help cut costs, increase margins, uh, you know, drive profitability, things like that. That's the way we've approached it. We do believe, again, history tells us to be careful about overpaying for these high flute trends. Um, when we look at some of the numbers, uh, you take NVIDIA, for example, again, I haven't reviewed it in the last month or a couple months, but you know, it's yeah, great company and so forth. But I mean, it's priced to perfection, absolute perfection. And that doesn't mean you can't make money on it. Yeah, it can go higher and people can chase it higher. But as value investors, we could not allocate capital all good conscience to it anywhere near the kind of valuations that we see today. Um, and so we go to the sidelines and look at other ways that we can play the AI space. And that's more businesses that can use it in the way they do their business, the way they run their business, the way that they, uh, you know, administer the business to drive increased profitability. And we are seeing companies talk about it more, um, and, uh, and, and so forth. So we'll, 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 we'll continue to learn, but we're not, we don't like to be the first person to jump on a, on a trend and just sort of run with it. Um, we'll, we'll let Kathy Wood do that. <laughs> Anything else that you're excited about for 2024? Maybe you can't share it yet because you're still doing the research on it. But is there, you know, an area, an industry, a type of product that that you think might be the next the next member of your 20 to 25 stock club? Yeah, um, I can't. Say, I, you know, I can't say that uh, there's something that jumps out. Um, specifically that I put in that category. I mean, we do have a number of businesses that we've added over the last um, couple of months that we like. I wouldn't put them in the category as sort of revolutionary, but I think good values, good opportunities, and uh, well positioned to make some, some, you know, some good money over the next, next, uh, the next year or two type of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing that would, uh, I, that I could say that's going to be uh, earth shattering the way that you, uh, the way that you talked about it there. I mean, I think it, 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 to me, it's blocking and tackling, just making sure all your businesses are well positioned, doing well priced, um, uh, appropriately. I do think in this one area that I think it has not caught up to the underlying commodity and that would say be gold and we're not big gold bugs on that, but we do run, I'd say 13 to 15% of our total equity portfolio would have gold and silver, 
and some base metal exposure to it. And those areas, especially gold, silver, um, the underlying commodities have done quite well in 2023. And we've got gold today, you know, as we're talking, um, you know, before, you know, this, this airs a little a few days later, but um, trading pretty close to record highs, almost $2,100. And yet a lot of the gold miners, uh, and I'm talking here, the elite ones, the best ones, Agnico Eagle uh, in particular, which we own, um, and they're trading 40% below where they were previous highs. Um, and uh, Franco Nevada, some of the big royalty companies, they've had some challenges um, in uh, some some you know, jurisdictions that they operate in. And uh, they're trading 30, 40% off their highs. Um, and so I think there's some opportunity there because I do believe that uh, you know gold you know, could do quite well in the next number of years. And uh, these companies are well positioned. So um, again, if we do run into financial problems, any of these economic issues, monetary problems, um, you know, I think gold would do just fine. As you as you leave Canada, because I want to talk a little bit about this international difference. Do you get better perspective when you think about? Okay, I'm always in, you know, Canada, you know, Canada or the states, and I'm I'm dealing with all of this stuff, and then all of a sudden I go to the islands, I go somewhere else. Do you change your perspective on? The global economy, the you know the direction that things are happening, and because you're around different people, you're having different conversations. You're out of your daily habit. I think it broadens you a little bit. Um, I mean, Grand Cayman still heavily influenced by the UK and uh, the United States. About seventy percent of offshore funds are, are are registered out of Grand Cayman. So I come down here. We have an offshore fund also. Um, and I talk to the players down here. So you, I think you get a little broadening of the perspective, but uh, it's still heavily centric uh, in terms of the U.S., uh, North America, and also uh, the U.K. and, and into, into Europe. But uh, so a, a few a few ideas. My, my neighbor here uh, is uh, is uh, one of the head fellows with a large bank down here in asset management. So we have good conversations and there's always just the concerns of what's going on in the marketplace, the things that you, we all know about, just trying to manage money, protect capital, and try to grow it in the midst of uh, a lot of uh, what would certainly appear to be insanity. Insanity. And and I'm curious then, you know, mostly, you know, most of our audience, they live in the United States, they think about the U.S. market, you're looking at U.S. Treasury bonds, U.S. S&P 500, all of that. When you're based in Canada, how much of that American focus, the American impact changes your perspective, right? Are the Canadian investors, are they looking more at how do I invest in Canadian indices, Canadian bonds? Or are they looking at both countries? What is that perspective when you're domiciled there? Canada really does focus an awful lot on the United States. It's it's impossible for us not to focus on the U.S. So when you're in the U.S. and you mention and you start talking about Canada, eyes glaze over. Most, yep. most Americans do not understand what's going in Canada. On in Canada, unless they're investing in say the oil and gas industries, you know specific industries. But Canadians are very much focused on the United States. We have to be. It's ten times the market. It's a much broader market, more depth uh, to the marketplace. Uh, the reserve currency of the world, of course, is the U.S. dollar. Implications uh, are for understanding the U.S. Are, are very important for us as investors. So I'd say actually the Canadian investors probably spend eighty percent of their time looking at the U.S. and uh, and international, maybe about twenty percent in Canada, just simply because that's where the opportunities are. Those are where the companies are to invest. The interest rates set by the Federal Reserve have the biggest impact, also on on Canadian interest rates. We really cannot detach from the U.S. market that much. We can detach a little bit, and we can sort of be a little bit different, um, but not not too much, or we'll run into problems with our currency or our valuation relative to the U.S. dollar and so forth. So I think. Um, 
we, we, we really do understand the U.S. market quite well. It's like the joke they say, you can talk to a, whether it's a Canadian or a foreigner or someone from a different continent, and they can name all 50 states in America, but you can ask an American and they can't name all 50 states. Well, our, our youngest daughter, who is, took a classical education, she's just finishing high school, she could tell you every single U.S. president. Every, she, she could rattle them off. She memorized them all. She read the original documents of, of the founding of the United States. And uh, so that, that's in Canada. So it is interesting. We, we, do, we have to understand the United States is such a large, important market and country to us. So what's the perspective then for you right now as we end the year, start the new year on... On, on what do you think about the Fed's impact of, of rates and what does that mean in terms of soft landing, hard landing? In terms of, I, I want to get really, the main question is, are you generally bullish? Are you generally bearish on the macro perspective right now? Then we can talk about the Fed's impact on that, right? Because the Fed itself can change the direction of the economy. And then from there, how are you investing in it? Because I know your approach is different. You're not just looking at, let's just sit in ETFs, let's sit in index funds. I know you're looking for value in very specific areas. Yeah, so we, we, we look at the broader market. The macro picture is very important to us, but trying to predict every little move here and there and uh, try to take, trying to make money off of short-term moves in the marketplace is not our focus. But we have to, you have to contextualize your investments. So even though we're value investors, we're looking at specific businesses, we have to put them in some kind of context in order to value them. So our concern are, are in terms of the broader marketplace is, yeah, we'd be a little bit more bearish. We're concerned with the with the uh, growth in the economies. The interest rates have come up an awful lot, as we know, record amount. We certainly thought 2023 would be a little tougher going in the U.S. market in terms of capital growth. It turned out to be a much better year than we anticipated. Um, and uh, so that was a bit of a surprise. And uh, but going forward, we're still very, very cautious, very concerned about the, the debt buildup, about the bunch of deficits. Um, you know, the the inflation picture uh, is not all solved yet. Everybody's so excited and thinking it's all disappearing. Um, and then the inversion of the yield curve certainly are telling us that uh, we're in for a slower growth economy and potentially, of course, a recession. In Canada, we already are in a very much of a significant slowdown, if not a recession already. If you look over in Europe, it's already basically uh, you know, quasi-recession. If you're looking at China, they've got problems. So the U.S. has been really the bright spot, if you will. But when you look at a $2, two trillion plus budget deficit, which is completely unsustainable, and a $33 trillion you know, debt, unfunded liabilities, all of the things that I could rattle off, that makes us cautious and certainly not uh, throwing caution to the wind and just putting all of our money into the market without really being careful about allocating the capital and trying to protect our investors' money. So how are you positioned then right now? Because we know that, right? We know that the rest of the world's not doing great. I struggle with the idea that the U.S. is at all-time highs right now on, on equity markets. That feels odd to me in a and you look, who am I? I'm not, I'm not the, the world's greatest stock market expert, but it just seems odd that we're not in the strongest economic place. I think we can all agree on that. So why are we at the strongest market? That seems odd. So I see your point about there's global recessions generally happening. How can the U.S. be insulated from that? We're looking at these budget deficits. I agree with those facts. So how are you positioned? Because you're not short the market, right? You have to participate. You still have to be long. Are you underweight? Are you in more cash? Are you a typical 60-40 stock bond? How do you position in a world where, my guess is you're a little nervous that I don't really want to be buying the top right now? 
Yeah, of course, we look after family wealth, and so it's going to vary by the family and their wealth uh, and their risk tolerances. So overall, in terms of our total book of business, we're actually pretty close to that 60-40 split, but that's almost coincidental. So 60, we're about 60, 60% equities, 40% um, short-term, very short-term uh, interest-bearing securities. But we do have clients that would be 80% equities, but those would be younger clients, professionals, putting money into the market, dollar cost averaging on a regular basis and so forth. And then we have older clients that are very, very much concerned about wealth preservation and they would have a higher weight weighting. So it would vary across our book. Our ideal right now, if a client comes in, we are not going to just slam them into the marketplace. We're going to work them into the market and it might take a number of months to even get to the allocation that we feel comfortable with in terms of uh, equities and fixed income. Because, you know, the market is not inexpensive. We're not trying to predict, you know, the next move in the market, but we value businesses. And so when we're valuing businesses, what the discipline that gives us is that if even if it's a great company, if it's paying, if it's too expensive and it's not worth uh, what we think it's, you know, it's overvalued, then we're not going to be buying it. And so that provides the discipline for us. And, um, and so that's, that's really where we focus our attention on is, you know, more value investors sort of a Warren Buffett type of approach where we're trying to find companies where, you know, we wouldn't mind buying the whole business at today's price kind of thing. So we have to be very selective, very picky. Um, but we do understand that the market could back off quite a bit. So that just keeps us with a little extra powder dry so that we can dollar cost average. Um, I was on the program Wealthy on, you know, about two months ago when we were talking about um, the uh, utility kind of stocks and infrastructure stocks. They had just been hammered, just hammered because interest rates had gone up so quickly, especially they peaked in October. And some of these stocks down 40% and more. So our view is we become really bullish on certain names. Uh, when we think that uh, we can take advantage of the uh, of the downstroke in, in valuations, even though we might be very cautious about the broader market, we can again try to find uh, specific opportunities. So, so dig into that a little bit more for me. So, when you get, let's give an example of the sixty forty. Let's say your your medium your medium uh, portfolio, right? Not the eighty twenty younger investor, maybe not the the older one who's looking at wealth preservation, but that sixty forty investor. That sixty percent is that. 30 individual stocks that you're you know really value investing on or is that general market funds how do you put together that let's call it 60 percent equity side of things because i know that like you said you focus on that warren buffett type of approach you don't want to just go you know what do they say uh, spray and pray or you're not just going to buy 500 stocks and see what happens so how are you actually finding these opportunities yeah, and I think that, look, a lot of index invest. I think index investing has gone too far, but that's my own personal opinion. I'm a value guy, so I'm biased that way. And um, But I think, as Buffett also points out, if you don't really know where you're investing, you probably should do more index investing. In other words, uh, you should be more diversified the more ignorant you are about you know where you're investing. So for us, we target 20 to 25 stocks to answer your question specifically. So if a client comes into us, they're going to end up uh, with about 20 to 25 securities. We might go 30 if it's a, uh, you know, if it's a trust or if it's, in, you know, we look after some endowment money, something that, you know, they want a little less volatility insurance portfolio of a small insurance company. You know, we run things like that, but um, basically it's 20 to 25 stocks and that will generally cut across six, 
six different industries. So we we aren't just focusing on say one industry and we're going to you know build big positions. We we understand the importance of adequate diversification, proper diversification, and then really understanding those companies well. And then putting discipline valuations on them, and then picking them off. But uh, no, so definitely very much focused portfolios because twenty to twenty-five stocks is definitely very focused. But you know, many of the companies we own are involved in many different countries, many different products, different products and services that they're creating. So they themselves are fairly diversified. So by the time you put a basket of those, you know, twenty twenty-five companies together, you've got a lot of exposure. And as Peter Lynch used to say. Uh, you know, we do not want to diversify by going everywhere. If you do that, then pay the lowest piece and just buy an index fund, right? So um, our, our view is if we're going to add value, we have to study the company, talk to management, understand the business well, value them, and then build a good portfolio. Diversify. I, I haven't heard that one before. I didn't realize that that was a Peter Lynch. Diversify. You talk about that a little bit because you do see these these indices where it's like, oh, you can get the Wilshire 5000 or the global world market. You can get every stock that's available. And we know a lot of those are dogs, right? We know a lot of these investments are just not scams, but like these are going nowhere. Most most stocks actually don't make any money in the long run. So so talk a little bit about diversify, you know, diversify, diversify and, and the difference between those two and, and when you want to just throw your hands up and say, fine, just give me the lowest cost index fund or ETF and, and, and I'm just going to not even bother. Yeah, I mean, in the, the book that Peter Lynch wrote many years ago, he was the manager of Fidelity uh, Magellan Fund, which back in the late 80s was the fund. I mean, Peter Lynch he was like the first celebrity, the first celebrity fund manager. Absolutely. But that book, One Up on Wall Street, which is probably still available, is a wonderful read. I really encourage readers uh, to go and pick that book up. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. Peter Lynch was an engaging, engaging person and an incredibly successful manager. The thing that was interesting about Peter Lynch, though, is that he ran uh, the Magellan Fund, one of the most successful uh, mutual funds at the time. The compound rate of return was high teens, if not close to 20% a year. Don't quote me on that. But when they did an analysis on the investors in the fund, the investors in the fund would return, they would, they ended up with about 15 to 20% of the return of the fund. And that's because they would buy high, sell low, don't stick, don't stay with the investment over the long term and so forth, which is quite interesting. So I think that, again, if you're a retail investor and you don't have a stomach for the market, and uh, you don't trust the people that are managing the money. Yeah, you probably just buy an index fund if you're not going to do the research and the work. Um, our our the whole whole reason why we exist is okay. Let's delve into businesses. You know, the person I started to work with in the industry back in 1990, he he said to me right off the bat, he said, Jonathan, the wealthiest people in the world are business owners. You look at the Fortune, you know, five five hundred list of the wealthiest people. They're all business owners and they generally own two or three businesses. And that's because they focus and then they, they, they compound on a tax deferred basis and so forth. So what we're trying to do is just emulate business people, understand the companies, buy a handful of businesses. And, uh, but that takes time. It takes research. I mean, there's, there's four of us that do research all day long. Um, three of us are CFAs. And we talk to companies and if we're going to really understand the companies well, we can't invest in 200 companies, 300 companies. There's no way we could keep up with them. So we zero in and understand the companies that uh, we like. 
And I think investors also need to realize is they don't have to own every company to do well. And they don't have to own the company that their neighbor owns. As long as they own a basket of good businesses that they understand, then you can do quite well in the market over time. And uh, envy is a, is a very bad um, characteristic. Um, if you, if you want to make money, you want to, you know, the FOMO, you know, fear of missing out and chasing what other people are doing. No, no, don't worry about what other people are doing. Know what you're doing. That's the key when it comes to investing. That, that's a great point. The wealthiest people are business owners. It's, they're not short sellers, that's for sure, right? They're, not, they're mostly not traders, although you, see, you do see a few you know, hedge fund guys in there, but they're typically the owner of the hedge fund, right? And they've exactly. turned it into they made, Exactly. They made money by owning the hedge fund, right? And uh, being asset management owners. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you're right. It's, it's not just your, your day trader, right? The day trader is not going to be on that, on that you know, Forbes 400 list, certainly not. And especially people who have been short the market, right? The bears out there. It, and it's hard because like right now I feel bearish, but but bears in general don't make money, right? Because the market is up 75, 80% on an annual basis, right? Like three out of four, four out of five years, it's going to be up. If you just don't have a clue, you're going to make money most years. And it's, it's difficult, even a professional, I've been doing this for 34 years. It's still difficult to go in and out of the market in a really disciplined way. And I know I realize there are some people who are, they, they, you know, they, they've seemed to do okay at uh, do more stock trading, but the emotion, it's easier if you can focus on Warren Buffett used to say, focus on the playing field and the scoreboard will take care of itself. If you focus on the scoreboard all the time and you think, oh, we're down, we're down, we're down, what's going to happen? No, that's not going to change the, the game. What you want to do is understand what's happening on the playing field. And if you focus there, and that's where we focus on the businesses, over time, even though you might be off you know, a year, it might be off two years, you might have some volatility. If you're buying good companies run by great people and in good industries, and they're reinvesting back in that business and compounding, um, over time, you'll do much better by staying in good companies rather than jumping in and out. Um, and in countries like Canada, it's in the United States too, you've got uh, fairly, fairly high capital gains taxation, but in Canada, it's fairly high. If you're every time you make a gain, you're you're parting with uh, you know half of that gain or you know quarter of the gain in Canada, then um, you're giving up a lot of your return, and uh, you're not you're not compounding on a tax deferred basis, which is really powerful over time, and that's why business people who can stay in a company, own it for an extended period of time, not pay taxes until the end, are far far uh, far further ahead in terms of their their situation. And then lastly, how concerned are you? Obviously, it's a U.S. presidential election year here coming up within 12 months. Does that does that color your perspective on on what you're investing in for the year 24? Or is it again, I got these companies, I think they're going to work no matter what. Or does the election give you pause on, on what might happen, how you might have to pivot? Yeah, good question. Um, the, the, the the number one focus is always the businesses, businesses, businesses. But as I said right at the outset, we do contextualize what's going on. And so we do have concerns about uh, the U.S. election, um, uh, as we do in our own country in Canada and many of our Western countries. I mean, we're capitalists, we're free market uh, folks, and the increasing um, size of the state and regulatory regime and control over um, the economy that we're seeing take place is, is a concern um, that the Biden administration has been exceptionally heavy-handed. And uh, as we see in Canada, and we don't think that is good for the overall capital markets. But uh, so my, my view would be I'd be much more excited if we would have much more free market, uh, free enterprise um, leadership in all of our countries. 
And that I think would provide an, un, an unlocking and unleashing of even greater opportunities in the marketplace. So we watch the election from that perspective, how much more interference, what are tax rates, um, regulatory issues, how far are they going to push this green agenda, how fast are they going to push it, that'll have inflationary issues. And uh, so that, that's the way we look at the economics and we just try to arrange our businesses accordingly that can weather as best as possible, even bad decisions, even bad governments uh, and governments that are not um, really looking out for the, uh, we, we believe the the benefit of the overall population. But you see, as I say, not just in the US, but we see that in uh, many of the countries around the world that uh, Governments are too large, they're too big, they're taking, the tax taxes are too high, the deficits are too high. And uh, when you get government running, you know, debt to GDP of 120, 130% plus, this is not a recipe for economic growth. Um, and when you have uh, economies uh, where the government's spending more than 50% of the GDP, like we have in Canada, uh, this is this is problematic. So we keep our heads down, try to find the right businesses, and then hope and pray that we have a, a change in government policies uh, to uh, to back off and give more more capital back into the free market. This is this is great. I appreciate Jonathan you walking us through your thought process and how you're investing. And and I agree, there's always going to be good companies out there, despite bad governments, bad economies. There are always there are always good companies. You just have to do the research and find them, or don't do the research. And, and ask Jonathan to do the research for you. That's the other way to go. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me here on Wealthy. And once again, uh, Jonathan Wellam, the, the CEO of Rocklink Investment Partners. Of course, you can connect with him at Wealthion.com. We've got a short form there. So especially if you're living in Canada or you're a Canadian citizen, we can connect you with him directly. It's He's he's our Canadian endorsed investment partner. And if you're not in Canada, we've got others, depending on the country that you're in, that we endorse, that we vetted. So if you're trying to figure out what to do with your finances, your family's investments, short form Wealthion.com fill it out. There's no commitment. There's no obligation. You can have a conversation, see if that's somebody you want to work with. If not, that's no problem. It's it's a free public service that we provide to help as many people as possible. Of course, if you like this video, if you like this podcast, please like it, share it, forward it, comment, engage with it. All those things help get it out to more people so they can enjoy and learn as well. And then finally, check out every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern, speak up with Anthony Scaramucci, the live call-in show, where he'll take your questions answer them, chat about it, all of that. He's got his own guests as well. And you can submit your questions, wealthion.com slash askanthony. So we got a lot going on here in the new year at Wealthion. Thanks again for listening, for watching. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.